Well, thanks for tuning in. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 3. It is um, sometimes amazing that how quickly, when something becomes routine, we can take it for granted. John Newton was a man who lived back in the uh, 1700s as our country was gaining its freedom. And he was a converted slave trader who would go on to be a pastor and a songwriter. He's written uh, a fairly famous hymn, maybe some of you have heard of, Amazing Grace. And some of the best songs that we sing are based off the testimony of someone's personal journeys. And, and he pens there, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's interesting, in one of um, his sermons, he begins by saying this, he says, I count it my honor and happiness that I preach to a free people who have the Bible in their hands. To your Bibles, I appeal, I entreat, I charge you to receive nothing upon my word any further than I can prove it from the word of God. It's interesting, we live in a day where so much information is constantly pounding at us. I, I woke up this morning fairly early. I wanted to go over my notes before I preached this morning. And uh, my commute, I, I got caught in traffic, which is a little bit odd because my commute is about 10 steps from my kitchen to my home office. But by the time I sat down at my computer, I had uh, a little bubble on my screen that said I had new messages. So I went and checked my text messages. And then I checked my email and a couple news sources. And before I knew it, all uh, several minutes before I got to my study had been consumed with an information traffic jam. And I was reminded this morning of Psalm 19.7, where it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Maybe, maybe there's some of you today who need wisdom. Maybe some of you need uh, some things to rejoice in. Maybe some of you just need some joy. Well, you've come to the right place. We're in Philippians 3, continuing our study, um, Joy for Today. And we're gonna pick it up in verse 17 of chapter three. Join with me there. Verse 17, it says this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul's not being prideful here. He's not telling everyone to, hey, look at me and look at how I live. He actually tells the Corinthian church, be imitators of me, just as I am an imitator of Jesus Christ. And the question would be, as Paul says this, be imitators of me. What, what is he asking us to imitate? Well, we've been talking about this for the past several weeks. Two weeks ago, Paul taught on this passage where it says that Paul counts everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord, that everything is rubbish. Everything else in his life pales in comparison to the value of knowing Christ. Last week, I looked at this verse in Philippians 3.13, where he says that I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And he presses towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. But what he's asking us to imitate actually goes back further than that. It goes back to the beginning of this letter. If we were to go back to chapter one, it says in verse nine that my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. If, if we're imitating Paul, is, is that true of us as we kind of navigate our way through this season of life that is disrupted, that is frustrating? He says in 
verse 12 of chapter one. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment, the gospel of Christ. The the idea here is Paul is saying, as he sits in prison, that his testimony has had an impact through the Roman guard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can picture Paul, he's sitting in his cell. This is a guy who uh, is nonstop. He's writing like he needs it to survive. And as he's writing these letters and penning these letters to the churches, the guards take notice and they're asking him questions and he's sharing the gospel. His testimony is increasing through his season of persecution. And Paul goes on to write to us in verse 29 of chapter one, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the question that I would ask you is if we're imitating Paul, who is imitating Christ, how is our testimony when we go through seasons of difficulty? Paul's distress, his imprisonment only accelerated the spread of the gospel of Christ. He also goes on in verse 27 of chapter one, he says, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But he doesn't just leave us there. He tells us exactly what that means. As we start chapter two, he says in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, if you wanna make your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you wanna be an imitator of, or an imitator of Paul, Strive for unity. He says in verse three, put on humility and count others more significant than yourselves. And then he gives us the example of Jesus Christ throughout his entire human existence, his incarnation modeled humility. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter two, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Watch your attitude. As you get into difficult seasons, imitate me. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Verse 15 of chapter two, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why do we do this? Because people are watching. Our testimony is important. It impacts our community because the alternative to imitating Paul who is imitating Christ, our alternative is to slide into patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking that are devastating to our lives and they steal our joy. So Paul begins this section of his letter to the church in Philippi by saying, imitate me. And he goes on in verse 18 and he says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice in that verse, for many, this is not some, some, thing that doesn't occur very often. The idea is many. This this happens often. It isn't rare. And then notice Paul's words. He says, I now tell you even with tears. So what Paul is saying is he's writing this, he's crying. This is the only time anywhere in the New Testament where where Paul talks present tense, that he is crying as he writes to the church in Philippi. What's moved Paul to tears? I, I, I don't sense in his life with the difficulties and the struggles that he's had to endure, that he's a man easily moved to tears. What has Paul crying in this text? I was thinking about it in the 10 years I've pastored this church. 
I'm not a man easily moved to tears. I can only think of two times where I've kind of um, lost it, not just got choked up, but kind of lost it as I was on stage in front of the congregation. The the first time that happened is I was uh, praying for a young man. His name was Rodney Cunningham, who was joining the military. And there was something that morning about praying for this man, knowing that he was leaving our church. I'd watched him grow up through our youth group. Man, man, it it moved me. It, It like caught me off guard. And I found myself in tears. The other time was saying goodbye to a family who had been with us really from the start of the church, Jason and Amanda Delinsky, and they were moving to Charleston. And I called them up. I wanted to pray with them as they leave, as they were leaving. And uh, I was caught off guard again. I was, it brought me to tears. And um, I, I was like, why? I, I wasn't overly close with Jason and Amanda. I knew them, but the, the truth is, that as I said goodbye to them, I was thinking, I was reminded of the years that we had spent as brothers and sisters in the same church. And sometimes we had gotten along and sometimes we had um, not gotten along so well, but I had watched God move in their life and in their family. And uh, it's, my my, my point in all this is is this, what usually would move me to tears is, is something that is relational. And I think what's happening here is Paul is moved to tears, not just by what he's trying to communicate to the church in Philippi, but he's remembering the faces. He's thinking of the people in his life that maybe once were walking closely with Christ, but now have actually become what he says in verse 18, they're enemies of the cross. Paul writes as he's seen the faces of these peoples and he's brought to tears. We don't know exactly why he is crying. We don't know if it's because of the damage that these people have caused to the early church or if he's really focused on the future judgment that awaits these men who have come to the cross, tasted of grace, and yet have chosen to be enemies of the cross. Paul's moved to tears. And so what he does is he describes very quickly four marks of an enemy of the cross. And it would be easy for us in this moment to basically say, well, let's think of some people that we know that that we would describe as enemies to the cross and compare them to the list that I'm going to give you. But but I think more importantly than that is before we start to think of somebody else, we, we need to look inward on this. We need to look at what Paul's instruction is and how he describes an enemy of the cross of Christ to make sure that we don't surprisingly find ourselves on that list. So, so look where he goes in the text in verse 19. Here's four marks of an enemy. And according to the text, actually, verse 18, an enemy of the cross. The first thing he says is their end is destruction. There is no middle ground when it comes to the cross. The cross confronts everyone. The the only question when we come to the cross is who will pay the penalty for our sin? Will, Will it be us or will it be Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made on our behalf? The cross either saves or it condemns. It leaves no man unaffected. Destruction here, when it says the end, their end is destruction, refers to an ultimate destiny, an ultimate destruction. It is looking forward to the future, and it is referring to eternal separation from God. It is referring to a time of torment and agony, and people get offended when we talk about hell but we need to talk about hell more. Paul says the enemies of the cross of Christ 
Their end is destruction. Now, no one would be so bold as to make that accusation if Jesus hadn't said it so clearly. Hell is not an imaginary construct. Today, there are legions of people confronted with the fact and the truth that they will spend an eternity separated from God the Father. Sadly, it's not hatred of the cross that makes you an enemy of the cross. It's indifference to the cross. All you need to do is be indifferent to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you find yourself as an enemy to the cross. To be confronted with the truth of the gospel, to come to the cross and to hear about the grace that is afforded to us through the cross and then to walk away unchanged is tragic. So Paul says the first characteristic of an enemy of the cross is their end is destruction. Then he says their God is their belly. And and Paul's not talking literally about our stomachs or about food. That is the analogy or the illustration that he's giving. And I find it interesting. There's nothing wrong with food. Food is a good thing. Our appetites are for our good. It's, It's not like he takes a bad thing, but he takes food. He says, listen, their appetite is their belly. And it's the things so often in our lives that are not good, they're not, not bad things, but good things misplaced, good things improperly prioritized that can make us enemies of the cross when our desire for family, for physical possessions, for sex, for a good reputation, when any of these things become our primary pursuit, our ultimate pursuit, these things can actually make us enemies of the cross. For example, Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver and gold. It is a good thing to have a good reputation, to have a good name, as Proverbs says. However, if your desire for a good name causes you to leave sin hidden, it lives, causes you to wear or to live a life where you're always wearing a mask. If it causes you to live a duplicitous lifestyle, if you're always just consumed with what others will think, if you're always scared to say what needs to be said, when we allow even our reputation, the things in our lives that are good things to become ultimate things, we become enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.8, again, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Beware of any pleasure that interferes with our passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. And I would just mention that as Americans, um, we are particularly susceptible to allowing other things to interfere with our pursuit of Christ because of the level of blessing and prosperity that we have enjoyed. I'm reminded that we're warned in Matthew 13, verse 22, in Christ's first parable, he talks about four soils. And when he describes one of the soils that takes the seed, the good news, the gospel that's being sown, he says this in verse 22. And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Be careful that the very blessings that we enjoy don't become a curse for us, that they don't choke out the word. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would 
save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the four marks of an enemy, the first one is destruction versus salvation. The second is desire versus denial. Here's the third one. It says, and they glory in their shame. I called this point, they celebrate rather than confess. The, the text, when it says, and they glory in their shame, it is a specific reference to sexual or sensual excesses. Reckless disobedience without shame. This, this is why you don't let sin fester. Sin like cancer is best diagnosed early. So the question that I would ask is simply this, are there areas in your life that have become rather than good things to enjoy, they've actually become excesses in your life? Are, are you celebrating sin in the name of liberty? We're warned throughout the New Testament of the dangers of this. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12, we're told that we can wound our conscience. As the Holy Spirit interacts with our conscience, we can actually wound our conscience when we ignore the confession of sin. Ephesians 4, 19 says that our 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 conscience can become calloused. Like our hands become calloused after a lot of work. If we are covering up sin, we, we lose feeling in our conscience. And then sadly, 1 Timothy 4.12 says that we can actually sear our conscience, that we can burn. If you've ever burnt your fingertips, you know how it loses the sensation of feeling. And, and, and you can wound your conscience and you can sear your conscience and you can callous your conscience. This is why sin must be dealt with. It never sits still. It is either dealt with and confessed, or if we're not careful, it'll be celebrated. And then a fourth thing I would like to point out just from the text, I hope you see it there. It says, the enemies of the cross, their minds are set on earthly things. All of a sudden, our attention, when we become enemies of the cross, it turns from heavenly things to earthly things. The Christian life is a constant battle for perspective. I, I was thinking back um, to in, in junior high, I, I took a elective class that they offered in photography. And, and, and back then in photography, you had to learn things like film speed and, and F-stops and, and you worked in a dark room developing your film. And I know some of you guys are like, well, what's film? Sorry, I didn't mean to date myself. But, but back then, these were things that were really important. And you would set on your camera the, the f-stop or the focal point, and that would determine what was in focus. And, and if you didn't get that right and match it with your film speed, all of a sudden your pictures would turn out blurry. Colossians 3 says this, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So as Paul looks and he reflects on people in his life that have become enemies of the cross, the things that he focuses on are these, that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and they've set their mind on earthly things. They've abandoned their pursuit of Christ and once again are focused on worldly things. And sadly, if that describes you, if you're watching this and you're thinking, really, on that list, 
Other things have become my priority. Christ isn't my primary pursuit. Warning. Paul's direct. He says, be careful you're not an enemy of the cross. You don't have to be opposed to the cross to be an enemy. You just have to be indifferent towards it. So so what is the contrast? What does it look like to live our lives in a manner that we're not enemies of the cross? And he goes right there in the text. Look at verse 20. He says this, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is making an identity statement. He is making a a, a value proclamation. When he says that our citizenship is in heaven, he is reminding us who we are. We've moved from an earthbound focus to a heavenly focus and the realities that are true of any follower of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is heaven. When he says this, it's interesting. It's not clear just reading Philippians 3.20, but when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, he's actually referring us back to a thought that he introduced in chapter one, verse 27. There he said, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But a, a better translation of that verse would be only let your manner of life has a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he is reminding us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We, we are, which means we are foreigners here on earth because we are citizens of heaven. The big question that I would ask you this morning in this message is simply this, where do I belong? Where do I belong? If someone were to observe my life, if they were to observe your life, would they say, well, that guy's obviously a citizen of heaven or he's a citizen of the things of this world. What consumes you? Because that will determine where you're a citizen. Here's what he says about being a citizen. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior. Now that's what your Bibles say if you're in the same Translation has my Bible, the ESV, it says, and from it, we await a savior. But it's interesting, if you go back to the King James Version or the New American Standard Version or the New International Version, all of those versions say it a little differently. And they say, we eagerly await. And and I think that word eagerly is actually important because if you're just awaiting a savior, like, I don't mean this wrong, but I can remember my mom when I was a little kid basically saying, hey, just you await till your dad gets home. And that didn't fill me with eagerness. But but here it says, if you're a citizen of heaven, you're eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. The minute that we saw back in March that we were going to enter into uncertain times because of this COVID thing, this pandemic, we immediately pivoted our teaching and, and we left the series that we were in and we turned to John 14. And in John 14, Christ is giving instruction to comfort his disciples' troubled hearts. And he says this, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14, verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. When we are going through difficult times, it is important that we set our focal point, our focus on the fact that we are citizens of heaven. And this is not some positive thinking like the sun will come up tomorrow. This is our reality. 
This is who we are. This is our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And here's what Paul knows. As he writes the church in Philippi, he knows that they are facing difficult days ahead, that a storm is coming. He's writing this letter somewhere in 61 or 62 AD is what theologians or commentaries guess are the dates of this letter. And if you compare that to Roman history, you know that their Caesar, their president at this time, is a guy by the name of Nero. And his trouble is coming and and he knows what's on the horizon for this little church. He says, don't forget who you are. Remember where home is. It's interesting this week, I I was reading an article and um, because of COVID and all of the travel restrictions that we have as U.S. citizens right now, there's very few places that we can go. We can't travel freely in Europe. We can't travel freely in much of Asia. I found this article and what it told, what it said, and I didn't even know that this existed, but many Americans, wealthy Americans are buying citizenship in foreign countries. It's actually called uh, SIPs or CIP. It's citizen investment programs. I, I had no idea that you could do this, but apparently has you can go to a foreign country and if you're willing to pay enough money, they will give you a passport from the country. They will, in effect, make you a citizen. So if you were to go down to the Caribbean, to St. Lucia, there you can spend $100,000. And for that investment into their country, they will issue you a St. Lucian passport, maybe a snorkel or a set of flippers. I don't know what else comes with it. That'd be a good deal. If you were to go to Cyprus, and you were willing to pay two and a half million dollars, you can become a citizen of Cyprus, which gives you travel access to the entire European Union. I I was surprised to hear that you can actually buy your citizenship into the United States. It's about $900,000. And it got me thinking, what what would I be willing to pay? What What would you be willing to pay to become a citizen of heaven? for eternity. But what would that be worth? What would you be willing to pay to become a citizen of heaven? And Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, you're already there. You already are. You are a citizen of heaven because you have been bought with a price. See, the enemy of the cross will never know this. But but as followers of Jesus Christ, we are citizens in heaven because Jesus paid the price for our citizenship. What an incredible truth. And in a season where we're, we're, we're struggling, where we're losing hope, when we maybe are feeling a little defeated, Paul is telling us, don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you're a citizen. Don't forget where you belong. So often it seems that we spend so much of our time and our efforts and we become so frantic trying to make this current place feel like heaven. And my fear would be that in the process of focusing on the comforts today, we lose our hope and our anticipation of the heaven that's promised for us. He goes on and says this. He says that this, uh, he, he's, he goes, uh, for we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This title, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the highest title in the entire universe. 
In chapter two of Philippians, Paul has just written that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is not meant to be just some get out of hell free card. Jesus is Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? He needs to be our Lord it says in verse 21, speaking of Jesus, it says, who will transform our lowly body, body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please want you to see this. Who does this? Jesus does it. It's, it's, it's he that transforms because he is Lord. Everything is subject to him. It says in verse four or in chapter four, verse one, because of this fact, because some, many are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, but our citizenship is in heaven. We have a Lord and a savior, Jesus Christ, and everything is subject to him. He starts chapter four of his letter to the Philippians by saying, therefore, because of these things, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So we've talked about four marks of an enemy of the cross. We've talked about the importance of letting our focus be that our citizenship is in heaven. Let me just close by giving you quickly four marks, in contrast to an enemy of the cross, four marks of a citizen of heaven. And to do that, I'm just going to quickly, if you have a Bible, turn there with me to John 17. And in John 17, we're going to read the words of Jesus Christ. He is in the garden the night that he is about to be betrayed, the day before he will go to the cross and die on our behalf. And he is praying to the Father and we have access to what the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, prayed for on that night. And it's amazing. I'm gonna pick it up in John 17, verse 13. Jesus says this, but now I'm coming to you And all these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let me just stop there. I'm blown away by that very statement that as Jesus sits, not wanting to go to the cross in his humanness, but submitting his will to the will of the Father. In the garden, in that moment, he's praying that our joy may be complete. And he goes on in verse 14 and he says this, I've given them your word and the word, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the first characteristic of a citizen of heaven is you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be hated. Hell is real. Jesus is the only means of salvation. You don't get to do whatever you want. You belong to Jesus Christ. Telling you what, people hate to hear those things. Look at verse 15 of John 17. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus says a citizen of heaven is is hated, but he's also protected. Just, Just think about this for a minute. As Jesus prepares to go for the cross, he is taking the time to say, I want their joy to be complete and Father, protect them. He's advocating for us. 
And he did it in the garden before he went to the cross and he's doing it today as I preach this. We're told in 1 John chapter two, that if any of us sin, we have an advocate today, present tense before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I got a feeling that God listens to the prayers of his son, don't you? So characteristics are of a citizen, you're gonna be hated, but Christ has already prayed and continues to advocate on our behalf that we'll be protected. And then he says in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. A, a citizen of heaven is being sanctified. He is becoming more and more like his savior, Jesus Christ. He is growing in his following and likeness of Jesus Christ so that he becomes more useful for the gospel and the spreading of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. And then it says this in verse 18, and as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world that were sent. So the four marks of a citizen is that you will be hated, you will be protected, you will be sanctified, and you will be sent. Four marks of an enemy of the cross, four marks of a citizen of heaven. The big question is simply this, where do you belong? Let's pray. Father, we are... Um, humbled as we pray that you would love us enough to take people who are by nature enemies of the cross and make them citizens of heaven. Father, I pray that that would be in the foremost of our thinking today, this week, this month. Lord, teach us endurance. Teach us to be faithful. Teach us to remember who we are that we are citizens because we are loved by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.